Welcome, everybody. Liz Kozak is an award-winning producer, writer, and editor. She is the director of editorial and content development at The Second City, and with Andrew Alexander, the co-author of The Second City, The Essentially Accurate History. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So tell me about the subtitle, The Essentially Accurate History. Is this one of those things where it's such a storied past that everyone has slightly different memories about things and you have to piece together? Yes, you nailed it. So (laughs) mostly I was concerned about, you know, my own personal assets being at stake. So I felt like if I put that disclaimer in, I didn't have to worry (laughs) that I would come back and get sued. How long have you been with Second City? I've been with Second City for as an employee for about seven years. But Mm -hmm. I like to say I started with the company as a kid. Um, When I was 14, actually, I had a huge disappointment. I didn't get into my high school play. Mm. I was very sad, morose. (laughs) My life was over. 14-year-olds can be very dramatic. A few days later, my mom got me out of bed and said, there's a phone call for you. And I picked up the phone, and I hear a gentleman's voice say, Elizabeth? This is Martin Short. And he proceeded to give me a very kind, wonderful pep talk. What had happened was that my father had written a letter to him. He was in Chicago at the time doing a play. And my father had written him a letter, sent it to the theater, saying, my daughter's really sad. She didn't get into her play. Can you give her a call and give her a pep talk? And he did. And we had this lovely conversation. His advice was terrible because he was like, stick with it. You can do it. And the truth (laughs) is, like, I'm a really sucky actress. So that was not going to be an option. But it was so nice. And it was like... I want I want more of that. So it was That's great lovely. at the takeoff a benefit in Toronto a couple summers ago to get to finally meet him in person and say, do you remember 25 years ago you called that kid at home? And he was like, it's just weird enough that I do remember it. So it, a great full circle moment. It is a good full circle moment. And the kind of thing that probably I can't imagine Brad Pitt makes a lot of those calls. I or, don't know. I know. never tried. <laughs> Maybe. Right. Who knows? Start le- letter writing campaign. So, How many more things can I be disappointed about <laughs> that I need pep talks? Let's talk about the Second City and the beginnings of it in Chicago because mm-hmm. it, it is now where as we sit here in Toronto and this show is heard across the country, uh, everybody knows – what Second City is in Toronto, it's a big deal because uh, the theater is here uh, and and there's new shows all the time. But it started off in Chicago, and it is uh, something that that I don't know that if it, when it began that people thought that it was going to take this life that it has taken since then. Right. Well, the impetus of this theater opening actually goes back decades before it opened in Chicago in 1959. Um, In the 20s, a woman named Viola Spolin was working at Hull House with immigrant children, and she invented these theater games to help these kids kind of come out of their shells and acclimate to their new environment. And her son, Paul Sills, who was a student at the University of Chicago, kind of took a liking to these games and realized that he and his mother sort of realized that they had this potential, this life beyond teaching students. Mm -hmm. And he and his buddies at the schools kind of took them and started utilizing them to create art, create theater, create this new art form of improvisation. So when Paul Sills, Howard Alk, and Bernie Salins opened the Second City in 1959, they wanted to use this new tool of improvisation to create these shows. And it was interesting that it didn't actually take very long at all. I mean, it opened in 1959 in December, and by the next year, it was the place where, you know, Hugh Hefner was hanging out on the weekends. So 
it really took off as a hotspot pretty quickly. I would guess that people hadn't seen anything like it before. I think that stand-up comedy in 1959 was Henny Youngman saying, take my wife, please. And so that's what most people probably thought of when they thought of comedy. And along comes this young, fresh voice uh, that was unpredictable and probably felt a little different. than And a little dangerous Mm -hmm. and a little off the rails and a little, you know, there was kind of no safety net, which has made it exciting. And is that where all the rules come from? There are rules to improv, right? You there, never say no. Right. There's all that sort of thing. In Tell theory, me a little bit yes. about that. Yeah. Well, in theory. Yeah. yeah. In theory. <laughs> the rules of improvisation are tr- really the rules that can apply in life in any situation. And that's what's really interesting is how we've sort of taken the tenets of improv beyond the stage and into the classrooms and at our training centers. And we're, you know, we're using improv with CEOs, with, you know, with nurses, with educators, with people with Parkinson's disease, with people on the autism spectrum. And so it's the idea of saying yes and to everything Mm -hmm. and not shutting people's shutting people's ideas down. it's this empathetic listening. It's being in the moment. It's responding in the moment. It's not sitting there thinking about what funny thing you're going to say in 30 seconds. It's listening to your par- your scene partner and being right there, which is hard to do. It is hard to do. I think because particularly when there's an audience sitting in front of you and they are there programmed to laugh and it is your job to make them laugh, I would think that that's the big hurdle is getting over the idea that I have to think ahead. I have to think funny. I have to to make everything that comes out of my mouth hilarious. Well, that's the great thing about Second City is that we don't only accept failure, but we sort of encourage failure Mm -hmm. because the things that fall flat, the things that don't work, the things that just don't fly are what make the things that do work that much more special. So we're encouraged to fail. We're encouraged to fail upwards. Um, and that's really something that I think the audience buys into because, I mean, they're rooting for you. Mm-hmm. Like, they want you to do great. So Yeah, nobody goes to a comedy show wanting not to laugh. I mean, unless they're <laughs> terrible at spending their entertainment dollars, but yeah. I love one of the ideas of improv is that you always work at the top of your intelligence. Yes. And that to me is, again, one of those life lessons that just should be in everyday life. Right. Well, it was started by a bunch of University of Chicago Smarties. So it was sort of created with that intellectual spin. Um, I will say that it's also a place that really looks to punch up, not punch down. And yeah, we are encouraged to work to the top of our intelligence. Well, I don't think that comedy works when you're punching down. You, When you are punching down on people who are, uh, I don't know, less fortunate than you are, that are easy targets, it's not funny. When you punch up and you're taking on the power structure, you're taking on rich people, you're taking on royalty or whatever it might be, that's funny. Right. And the other thing, too, is that the way you sort of succeed at Second City and the way you really get to the top of the class is by the principle that your job is to make the people on stage around you look good. So it's not a self-focused art form. You're not up there trying to be the star in the spotlight. You do well at Second City if you make everyone else around you look good. So it's, you know, we live in a world where a lot of comedy is really snarky, really Mm -hmm. mean, you know, puts people down. And the fact that it's baked into the culture there is the way to get ahead and be successful in your career by 
letting other people shine is sort of also what, you know, speaks to the kind of caliber of person that comes out of our theater. Tell me about the early days, 1959 in Chicago. Uh, Were there names in the cast that we would know? Um, Well, you know, for me, I really love the work of Barbara Harris, who I think was a really brilliant comedian. Um, And she went on to be, you know, people now might know her as the mom in The Parent Trap, things like that. But um, I really love her. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, it's interesting, too, because even The Compass Players, which was the predecessor to the second season that came out, that was... um, Nichols and May, Mm -hmm. you know. Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Yes. Who were in their moment, because they they were only together, I think, for Pretty briefly. Yeah, pretty briefly. But such genius, such brilliance, and such ease and charm and sophistication in their comedy. uh, Those things are still funny. Those routines that they did are still funny 40, 50, well, probably 50 years later now. Right. And she just won her first Tony Award. I know. Yeah. You know, at... Her age, it was incredible yeah. to see her sort of have that sort of longevity. and Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Alan Arkin is a name that is often connected mm-hmm. to Second City Chicago. Uh, tell me a little bit about sort of uh, when he would have arrived and, and the impact that he made there. He came, I believe, at the request of Paul Sills, who had seen him in some other work. I think he at the time thought he was not probably going to be cut out for it. And showed up, and it did sort of really change the trajectory of his life. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it was definitely an experience that it's interesting, whether it's an alum from, you know, the early 60s to today, it holds a special place in everybody's heart that they go back to as being, the, their, you know, their, their formative years. Well, I, I think for a lot of people, it's like college. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk about your college years, where I think for a lot of people, you really... Uh, define who you are or who you're going to be moving forward. And the Second City, when you talk to people who have worked there and been on the main stage and and done these shows, it is a defining moment for a lot of people. And it does define professionally what they're going to do. Right. Good and bad. I mean, at that same time period, you have somebody like Joan Rivers Mm -hmm. who – you know, came in for an audition, didn't know what the Second City was, didn't know what improv was, you know, waited five hours, did her audition, found out there was no script, and, you know, went ballistic, threw an ashtray, was cast anyway, surprisingly. Yeah. But, you know, I think for her, that was how she really found out, I'm a solo act. You know, like, right. she, I don't think she played nice with others, and that was something that she had to learn, and that's just as important of a lesson. There's a new forward by Catherine O'Hara, uh, who we love we love I Catherine love, O'Hara. I love. Yes. My daughter, my eight-year-old daughter always brags at school that her mom knows the mom from Home Alone. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. I don't think there's anyone that doesn't love Catherine O'Hara, though. So I mean, if you don't, there's something clearly <laughs> wrong with you. <laughs> now, when we left, we were talking about uh, the Second City and Alan Arkin's early years there. And during the commercial, you thought of something else you wanted to say. Oh, well, I just, it's interesting, too, because we talk about the history of this theater spanning all these decades. Mm-hmm. and what the commonalities are that unite all these alumni. And he's somebody who even later in his career will say he still loves working with people from Second City because there's a shorthand that everybody mm-hmm. speaks. There's an understanding. There's a commonality and a work ethic. You know, you mentioned Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy, who met at the theater in the early 70s, still working together on Schitt's Creek. Yeah. It's, it's not only that people hone their own artistic skills, their creative skills. It's that 
there's this common language that everybody speaks in a way that they seek each other out and love working with each other. And I don't think that there's any better training than actually doing it in front of an audience where you, the, yeah, the reactions yeah. I mean, are immediate. Yeah. Uh, there's no messing around. If you shoot a television show with an audience or if you, if you make a film, you can wait a, you know, months or in the case of a film, a year to get a reaction. Uh, this way is immediate and you learn what works and what doesn't. Well, that's actually how the shows are created, which I think sometimes people come to the Second City and don't really know what to expect or they think Mm -hmm. it's going to be stand-up or they think it's going to be all improvised. And we actually do have fully produced written shows. So the cast will rehearse during the day with their ideas for for sketches and then at night – Um, sort of after the show, there's this famed third act of improv where they'll start testing out new material and trying these scenes and react and adjust in real time based on the audience's reactions and then kind of take those scenes and slowly fold them into the show Mm -hmm. until the new material sort of usurps the old material and a new show is born. So we don't actually ever close a show at Second City the new one sort of organically takes they, over. They molt their skin. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and there's no way that we could do that without the audience. Right. I mean, they're essentially the eighth, seventh, eighth, and you know, three hundredth cast member. Well, in Toronto here, uh, years ago, those sets were free. They still are. I still think are. the third, the, the third set was always free, and so. Years ago, when I had no money in the '80s, you know, or in the, it, it, we'd go over to the old firehouse on Lombard mm-hmm. Street, and you'd go for that final set because there was no cover charge, buy a beer and sit there and watch some of the most hilarious, without iconic. a net comedy, yeah. iconic <laughs> comedy, and and it it always used to make me. Uh, slightly crazy because I would show up if I was late one night or if I skipped a night, they'd say, oh, uh, Robin Williams was here. You just missed Robin right, Williams. Right, right, right. So you just missed, you know, whoever the biggest comedy star in the world was at that moment. They've just stopped by. And that's still, you know, we'll have in a week, I mean, in Chicago, we've, you know, it'll be a basketball team one week. And then it'll be, you know, an alum like Fred Willard the yeah. next week. And then, you know, we just we just had Justin Trudeau in our audience yeah. recently. So, you know, definitely you never know who's going to be stopping by. That's right. So do you think that there was a shift in the style of comedy? Not so much the MO of how right. the comedy was created, but the style of comedy. Would it have been political when it began? Would it have been uh, in 1959 – what were the topics that were being covered versus in 1979, which probably mm-hmm. were somewhat slightly right. different? Well, I mean, everyone loves a good Eisenhower joke. <laughs> so that, that's where we started. You know, then you moved to Nixon. You know, yeah. and and being in Chicago, being in Toronto, you're, it's interesting to see this, you know, you can go see a revival of, I was going to say cats, but cats is kind of a loaded term. Yeah, right it now is with the these film. days. Yeah, yes, right, right, right. Yes. But you know, you go see a revival of a musical and the Phantom of the Opera. Yes, yeah. and some certain things age well. Certain things are classic. Certain things, you know, I recently saw a production of My Fair Lady in Chicago where I was like, well, this doesn't really hold up in today's <laughs> context. But you know, the Second City is always creating new material that is born of the era in which it is created. So. It's sort of incredible to have this art created in real time right. based on the political climate, based on, you know, the 
DNC convention based, you know, when it whether it's a hippie generation or a yuppie generation or whatever is going on. And I mean, you look at, you know, a joke about starting with Eisenhower jokes in 1959. But I mean, gosh, I mean, today we've got there's plenty of Trudeau jokes. Yep. God knows there's plenty of Trump jokes. So I don't think that Second City will ever want to stop kind of taking on the man and questioning authority. Well, that's the whole idea of punching up. Yes. Those shows in the 1950s, were they archived? Do we know? Is there a... Is Some there... of them are. There are. There is video. Mm-hmm. So it is it is pretty incredible to watch some of it. It was actually... There's... I guess there's um, some earlier video than the 60s kind of... Uh, <laughs> the quality, quality is definitely an issue. But it is... I mean, it's incredible. And especially in those later years to get to watch, you know, the baby-faced... Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert yeah, is doing yeah. their scenes. Um, but yeah, I mean, we have an extensive archive of a lot of footage, audio, photographs. Obviously, it was it was daunting to go through all the files, all the photographs to kind of pick the best of the best for this book. There must be thousands. Thousands. Yeah. And I mean, you know, to be honest, you know, now you take a picture with your phone and you can see it right away and delete the bad ones. So, you know, we were sensitive to the fact that not everybody's archival photos are their most glamorous. Well, particularly when you're dealing with a large cast. And if you're taking a picture of 10 people. Someone's eyes are closed. Yeah. At least one of them. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and, and so you've got uh, like there's is there a warehouse somewhere? There's got to be a ton of this. There are there are warehouses. There are, you know, storage facilities. Um, we were really fortunate because in 2015 in Chicago, we had a huge fire that almost destroyed the entire building. And a lot of personal mementos were lost. Luckily, a lot of those things had been scanned, digitized. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the files are digital at this point. But yeah, there are, there are Second City literal, literal comedy vaults. Um, but, you know, and every and one of those stories is so important. And I, you know, I, I appreciate you saying one of the authors of this book because mm-hmm. it's really you know, by the second city. It's people in their own voices. It's in their own stories. It represents not only the alumni, but so many of the staff members and producers and directors who were behind the scenes creating this work. And it is such a collective history that there's so many pieces to it. So we are sitting, you are from Chicago. You work at the second city in Chicago. And growing up, I mean, other than Martin Short, was it a thing for you? Yes. You, oh my go? God. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. I mean, I grew up such a huge fan. Grew up a huge fan. You know, Bill Murray is from Wilmette, which is the next town <laughs> over. Um, so you know, his his family frequented the restaurant where I waited tables as a kid. I actually also met Bill Murray at a book signing when I was nineteen, and um, he he palmed me a hundred dollars and said with a whisper, he whispered in my ear, "My fans don't take the bus home." So like, wow. <laughs> I feel like, I, you know, all those crazy stories about him are true. I was destined to be part of this place. But yeah, you know, as a teenager, we joke about it now. And I, I was lucky enough to get to thank her in the acknowledgments of this book. But my best friend Ariel and I would tell our mom we were going to the mall and borrow our mom's minivan. And we'd go down to the Piper's Alley building and we'd go to Second City and we'd see, you know, Rachel Dratch and Tina Fey and Scott Edson and all these great people that... You know, so she always likes to, you know, she was a big impetus. She was excited for this book to come out because she feels personally invested. Like sort of yes, like our history was like in city. Yeah, so I went forever. I was too nervous to take improv classes. It really scared me. Mm-hmm. I wish I hadn't. I went through the writing program there, which was incredible, life-changing, wonderful. Um, and I do love how the training center 
is you know, certainly anchored. The Cornerstone program is, is the improvisation program in the conservatory. But the fact that there are so many different times of screenwriting and late night comedy writing and sketch writing and all sorts of acting. And and when did all that begin? I mean, the, the improv, I would imagine, the improv classes were from the beginning or mm-hmm. pretty much from yeah, the beginning. But from when the did beginning. It, 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 because there is a training center, it is, uh, it, it's a, it's a school right. as well as a theater now. Well, that, a big part of that I think was also Andrew Alexander and his partner, Len Stewart, taking over as owners and understanding sort of the potential of what improv could do for other people. So I, I, I want to say that the training center was formalized in Chicago and in, in the mid eighties, mm-hmm. shortly after, after Andrew and Len took over as owners and um, probably shortly thereafter in Toronto. And we now have one, our our Second City Hollywood is exclusively a training center. And it's cool too, because we do online classes. So you can, yeah. you know, we have people, it's nice. We do have people who fly in from all over the world to do some of our intensives or they'll come in for a week-long program. It's like summer camp for grownups. <laughs> I know uh, someone personally who overcame terrible anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, would not leave the house for weeks on end, uh, and then was somehow convinced to take this improv class. And it was torturous at the beginning, sure. uh, but it has absolutely uh, changed his life. Yeah. Improv for Anxiety is a program that we do that sort of couples the principles of improv and will also have sort of a group therapy component mm-hmm. to it. Um but really, I think so much, you know, and I'm somebody who has certainly struggled with anxiety and there's a time and a place where I would not have been able to sit here in the studio with you right. and talk. Um, but I think really that practice of being in the moment and listening and responding and not being terrified by what's com- the unknown coming right. ahead of time is really life changing. So let's talk a little bit about the Canadian end of, of all this. So Andrew Alexander is uh, working in Chicago at the Ivanhoe Theater, mm-hmm. and he hears about Second City. Pick up the story from there. Yeah, he started hanging out there in the early 70s and, you know, catching improv sets with Bill Murray. And, my God, who yeah. wouldn't want more of that? You know, he became friends with John Candy, who, you know, John Candy was actually tricked into auditioning in Toronto by Dan Aykroyd. And, you know, he was not like a 19-year-old one-time Kleenex salesman. <laughs> and he was so good. They're like, you're too, we're sending you to Chicago. So John Candy was in the Chicago cast, started the same week as Bill Murray. Andrew started to get to know these guys and, you know, really liked, really liked what he saw. Yeah. And at the time, Bernie Salins, the Toronto venture had sort of opened and shut very briefly on Adelaide Street in 1973. And... Bernie, luckily, you know, trusted Andrew enough who came up with a little business plan and borrowed $7,000 from a friend and took over the Second City Toronto and within a few months reopened at the old fire hall. And, you know, the rest is history. He was very scrappy. He would come up with, I think he had one uh, food special called like the Oyster Moister, which I... (laughs) (laughs) Yep, Um, yep. Yeah, and then took over the Chicago in 1985. Arts File wrote, There are many significant moments in the history of Canadian comedy, but likely none is more important than the day Andrew Alexander plunked down a few thousand bucks to buy the Second City outlet outlet on Lombard Street in Toronto. I mean, it's possibly true. When you think 
of the amount of talent that went through that building and the amount of talent that went through that building that went on to create SCTV, help form Saturday Night Live. I mean, it's really, really remarkable what came out of that one building. Absolutely. And, you know, Saturday Night Live started and took with it Gilda and Belushi and Aykroyd. And Andrew immediately realized... He's going to lose his cast. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to yeah. lose everybody. So what do we we need our own show, and uh, yeah, SCTV. It's incredible. I mean, I grew up. My parents would always say, "Yeah, yeah, Saturday Night Live," but there's a show called SCTV. It was something I'd heard about since I was a kid. Um, incredible, incredible. And I loved SCTV, and I think one of the reasons that it has held up so much even to this day, 30 years later, is that it wasn't political particularly. It mm-hmm. was about pop culture. It was about things that, that they had seen on television, set in a television station. So there's a talk show. There's, you know, all that. And and I think that's the brilliance of that show and part of the timeliness. No, not timeliness. The, the timelessness, timelessness of that show. I actually... Um was laughing. So my friend Jennifer Candy, John Candy's daughter, mm-hmm. she posted on Instagram the other day, um, well, Canada's looking for a new face for the $5 bill. Yeah. And she wanted to put forth, and I fully support this, and I do the too. five neat guys. <laughs> put the funny. five neat guys on the $5 bill. I think it would <laughs> be very bright, colorful, and their little sweater vests. Yep. I love that. I love that. So uh, it is true, though, that I think SCTV was created in response to Saturday Night Live. Absolutely. One way to keep the actors busy. But the actors, so Eugene Levy and, and Catherine O'Hara and everyone, they were shooting the show during the day and still doing shows, live shows at night. Yep, still doing at the, the shows very at beginning. Night. That's yeah. exhausting. Yeah. And that show, I mean, it's interesting now because you look at the landscape and we're now very accustomed to a show getting canceled on this week uh, or right. getting canceled on this network and then moving to this streaming service and kind of the the shifting to mm-hmm. kind of save shows and have these sort of campaigns from fans or networks or whatever. And SCTV was, I mean, it changed names. It changed time slots. It was 90 it minutes days. long it at one point. It was 90 minutes. It was 60 <laughs> minutes. It went away for two years. It moved to Edmonton yeah. and filmed it. I mean, the crazy stunts that they had to finagle to keep that show on the air is it's pretty remarkable. It is remarkable that it that and considering now how we all look back at that show as a classic television show mm-hmm. and it's still airing here at various times uh, that it, it did have that amount of I don't know not opposition but that amount of uh, the growing pains I guess growing, growing pains, pains yes. is the way but definitely like complete with you know dramatic moments of people storming the NBC office and outside with signs and posters and yeah. you know protesting the cancellation so it you know it has such a storied history it has people who are still amazing I mean I was lucky enough to be part of the documentary that we were filming with Scorsese mm-hmm. that we shot at the Elgin Theater last spring and to see that cast back together and the amount of excitement and electricity and chemistry that they have still is like I, such a special thing to I, witness. I, I would suggest that uh, putting them back together for that documentary was kind of like putting the Beatles back together for a lot of people. Absolutely. People freaked out when yeah. we announced it. It was incredible. And my only regret about it is that we couldn't fit more people in the building. We had to kind of block off a good number of seats for all the cameras and everything. That's right, yeah, shooting. And it was was logistically tricky to sort of maximize the 
the supply and demand. Um, this is an update yes. of a book that came out in the 90s. It's a very 90s looking it's book. It's a very 90s looking My book. My parents gave it to me. I remember opening it. I mean, it's so iconic. I actually, I'm staying at the at the Hyatt down the street and I checked into the room and the there was the book on the on the nightstand really? as part of my yeah amenities. That's very funny. So uh, why update it? I mean, well, time has passed. Yes, time has passed. So in addition to the fact that there have been twenty more years of history, um, including a extremely huge fiftieth anniversary that was held at the Second City, which unfortunately was a couple years before I started. So I'm sad I missed out on that. Mm-hmm. But. Um, 20 more years of history, and the context has changed, too. I mean, I look at that early book, and I know I I brought up Barbara Harris earlier being in in the original cast, and I I sort of looked at the way she was written about at the time, and, you know, I I have a thing that I strongly dislike when people talk about, oh, she was so beautiful, nobody would ever think she was that funny, or when sort of even something intended as a compliment, just in today's context— just didn't feel right. So it was interesting to sort of look at those kinds of things. And, you know, I think the book said something to the effect of regarding Tina Fey and and Jeff Richmond, her collaborator and husband, like, big things are ahead for these two. And, you know, it just felt like... It felt dated. It felt dated. Yeah. Yeah. And the new book corrects all that stuff, plus probably covers... I mean, the, the old book wouldn't have had Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert had a very brief mention of Steve Carell because yep. I think he was a Daily Show correspondent mm-hmm. at the time. But yeah, Steve Carell, Steve Colbert, um, you know, Jack McBrayer, Keegan-Michael Key. Yeah. And now we've got all these new people coming up like Tim Robin, Tim, I always confuse this because their names are so similar. <laughs> Tim Robinson and Sam Richardson, right. who met actually, we had a theater in Detroit for many years, Second City, Detroit. Um, Tim was Sam's teacher and would sneak him into bars <laughs> when he was underage and, you know, they went on to make Detroiters and Sam's on Veep and Tim's got this amazing, amazing show on Netflix. So it's cool to talk about, you know, this next up and coming generation. A.D. Bryant is someone I'm a big fan of from SNL mm. and Shrill on Hulu, Amber Ruffin. I love kind of getting to sort of, you know, put down some put down some bets on the next huge generation. It's funny you talk about sneaking uh, one into the other mm-hmm. f- to bars for beers. Uh, and this is not a Second City related story, but uh, Wanda Sykes, I interviewed her a little while ago mm-hmm. and she told me stories that when uh, Dave Chappelle started, he was way underage. So she used to say that she was his aunt <laughs> and and sneak him into clubs so that he could do sets, not to go drinking, but to do sets. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, right? for yeah, years. The they did that for you know two or three years. Um, the strength of Second City, is it the program? Is it the casting? Is it when lightning really strikes and you get a Bill Murray up there or a Steve Carell or a Barbara Harris or an A.D. Bryant? Like, what, what is it? What's the strength of it? I would argue that no. I mean, obviously, there are people who've become household names. But I don't think the theater's power is in the individual accomplishments. Mm-hmm. I think the... The true staying power is that it is an ensemble-based group and, um, you know, you get this one group of people together for this one special moment in time, this one special show that is very much a part of the time in which you are seeing it. And it's just this evolving, growing, shape-shifting thing that's, A, never going to run out of material because Mm -hmm. it's taking on, you know, today's world. 
um, and that it's created by the people who are also performing it. It's their very specific points of view. Um, the uh, early days of the Toronto Second City, it didn't take off straight away. So one closed, and then they opened another one on, on Lombard Street. And I love a story here about Andrew Alexander that he used to go across the street to a place called the Jarvis House, and he'd offer free beer to anyone who would come over. So he would literally poach customers from yes, other places is, to I come actually, in. Before I worked at the Second City, I worked for Oprah Winfrey. And her early days in television, the same thing. She would go outside and offer people free coffee and like free heat <laughs> to come in and watch her show. Free so, heat in Chicago yeah, was that's, probably a good that's thing. That's no yeah. small thing, right? Actually, Jack McBrayer... Um, he became involved with the Second City because he would come to the improv sets for the free air conditioning. So, That's funny. Yeah. That's very funny. Yeah, so you you got to do what you got to do to fill up a room. Okay, let's uh, do some uh, quick hits here. Oh, We've boy. got a few minutes left and see if you can uh, fill in some of the blanks and some of these stories here. Okay. Bill Murray bounces a heckler and then comes back and finishes a set. Yes, that is something, again, when I when I speak about things that maybe in today's context are a little bit iffy, um, <laughs> yes, he, he allegedly, as the story goes, uh, was in Toronto performing. They did, Andrew came up with this stunt where he switched the Toronto and Chicago cast for two right. weeks. So Bill Murray was here performing. There was a heckler. He may or may not have rearranged the person's arm bones, oh. in theory. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, I think the legend is that he drove the guy to the hospital and bought him a beer after and it was all good. But you know, we don't encourage that. Uh, well, th- that's good to know as an audience member. Yes. That is good to know. Uh, Adam McKay made Steve Carell cry. Yes. Um, and I have to remember that story. I know it was that Steve, I believe, was was dating his now wife, Nancy, at the time. Yep. And they were at a touring company show. You're going to have to fill this one in. Well, they were me. they were doing a month-long run at a theater in Dallas. Right. And uh, the owner uh, specifically asked for a show that was edgy. Uh, there were some problems. And um, let's go on. The audience hated them. Uh, the cast included Adam McKay and Nancy Walls, who was then dating an unknown mm-hmm. actor from Chicago named Steve Carell. When he came down to visit Walls during the run, Carell and McKay cooked up the idea that they would pick Carell from the audience as if he was just another audience member. When he got on stage, McKay would then ridicule Carell until he started sobbing. <laughs> That's just mean. It's you know, the cast, mean. and especially the '90s cast. They there was a show um, where one day during the improv set. Improv set. They told the audience that uh, Bill Clinton had been assassinated. Oh my! Wow! And everyone believed it, and it, like it was, it was so upset, and uh, that was a, a, an angered audience I'm when sure they found that... out what happened. That was a stunt that was not repeated. So I think, um, yes, we we like to maybe challenge people's beliefs, but maybe not like toy with their emotions in a way that's, yeah, yeah, that's a little bit extreme. Poop rains down on the cast at Second City Toronto. Oh my gosh, yes. So, (laughs) you know, these buildings have been through a lot. And in the early days, there was a pipe, the pipe that burst. And it's funny because that's an early days story, but a very similar thing happened in the Chicago theater like two years ago. So there's been an ongoing thing. But yes, you're, you're, this cast is trying to do their work. The pipes burst. Everything's exploding. And I think Andrew was just kind of trying to let him know like one day 
these will be the, the best years of your life. You'll look on this, back on this with the fondest of memories. And you'll laugh. And you'll laugh. Oh, you'll laugh. You'll have fun. This was in a world like before Lysol wipes. <laughs> Gross. How did we live in a world before Lysol wipes? I don't know. Uh, John Belushi gets out of a drug bust by name dropping Second City. He did. Before his breakout on SNL, John Belushi uh, was part of Second City. He was friends with everyone, uh, but he had an unsavory friendship with a local character named Dr. Psychedelic. Uh, he found himself uh, in handcuffs. Uh, cast member Tino Insana swung mm-hmm. by the place to pick up John to go home for Thanksgiving. He walked in and Belushi, who was pleading his case to the police at the time, said to the arresting officer, he's on Second City too. So the cop took off the cups and let them both leave. Huh. That was in this book? <laughs> <laughs> that might have been copied no, th- th- this is not all from the oh, book. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I didn't know that story. I was like, I don't remember writing that because that was an exciting story. It is an exciting story. And uh, the cast does a show for just two people. Yes. Uh, that was in that the was 70s. George Went and Tim Kazarinski. Yeah. They, they, there's sort of an agreement where if you if there are less people in the audience and there are in the ensemble, they sort right. of make that call if they're going to do the show or not. And there were two people in the audience. They weren't going to do the show. And they went out and talked to him and found out they were a couple celebrating their anniversary. They uh, had driven in from Wisconsin. And they said, there's there's no way we're not doing this show. And they said it was one of their favorites ever. I love that. Yeah. I did a, a Q&A once with a director in Toronto named Bob Clark. He directed Porky's, which for mm-hmm. a long time was one of the biggest selling movies mm-hmm. in Canada. Uh, and, and lots of other stuff, Black Christmas, lots of things. And we were out for dinner, and they were showing all the Porky's movies back to back. And at some point, we were going to show up and do a Q&A between right. them. And someone called and said, there's only like four people in the audience, so don't bother. Mm-hmm. And Bob said, if those four people cared enough to mm-hmm. show up and and watch these movies, I care enough to go out and do the Q&A. Absolutely. There's, there's another story in the book, too, about that happening at the Second City in Cleveland, I believe, where it was just a couple people in the audience. And the fact that... In a lot of times in those cases that the that the ensemble says we're absolutely going on sort yeah. of speaks to the caliber of person employed. Just have a minute left. What is the legacy of Second City? I think that it is, you know, it's a place that creates smart, thoughtful, courageous comedy. Um, it teaches you to listen, to be in the moment, to challenge the status quo, to work together. It's kind of all those aspirational qualities that you know, we just want more of in society in a way that does it in a really entertaining, spontaneous, um, joyous way. That's the way we started the interview, talking about how Second City provides lessons for your everyday life Mm -hmm. as well. Good lessons, one and all. I've been in conversation with Liz Kozak. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you so much. Have a safe flight back to Chicago. Uh, She is one of the co-authors of this big, handsome coffee table book called The Second City, The Essentially Accurate History. Uh, It's an update of a book that came out in the uh, 90s, but it's a fantastic read with lots of cool photos and everything you want to know about Second City and also a forward by Catherine O'Hara who doesn't love that. Uh, My thanks to uh, Liz for stopping by. My thanks to Ben Harrison on the board. Most of all, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk again next week.